0: What is your life? What is your life, James asked, for you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. In light of eternity, our lives are but a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second. When death comes to a man or woman, a boy or girl, and it will come to us all, we are reminded that our lives are fragile and momentary. So I want to begin today's message with a quote from Ian Murray about the brevity of life. Listen to this quote from Ian Murray. In the light of the passing of centuries and the brevity of human life, even the greatest of men in themselves are only shadows. Our lives, said Spurgeon, are but like seconds in the tide of this great time of ours which is itself but a second in the great duration of eternity. Or, as Winston Churchill once confessed in Sorrow, we are only specks of dust that have settled in the night on the map of the world. The one thing which ultimately gives significance to any man is his relationship to God and how he will finally stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. For us to speak about the dead is, in a sense, to anticipate that judgment, and that might be entirely improper, were it not that we already know the standard by which the deeds and words of all men will be measured. The word that I have spoken, Jesus said, the same shall judge him in the last day. Last month, a well-known civil leader died. She went to stand before her maker and give an account for her life. She was one of the most well-known advocates for the freedom to murder millions of babies inside their mother's womb. She was one of the most well-known supporters of rebellion against God's design for marriage. In all seriousness and solemnness that is proper when speaking of the death of any image-bearer of God, we would rightly say that a wicked ruler has perished. This morning I want us to consider the biblical response to the death of a wicked ruler. Today's sermon will take into account that standard by which the deeds and words of all men will be measured. God's law word. The main texts for today's sermon are found in the Book of Proverbs, if you want to turn there. There are two main texts uh, I want us to consider, we'll really be looking at the themes from these t- these two verses, uh, which are prominent in many verses in the book of Proverbs. But if you turn to Proverbs chapter 11, we'll look at, I'll read one verse from there and one verse from Proverbs 28. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 10, the word of God says, When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. But... Excuse me. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. So when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. And when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. We'll also look at Proverbs 28:28. 28, 28. When the wicked rise, the people hide themselves. But when they perish, the righteous increase. When the wicked rise, people hide themselves, but when they perish, the righteous increase. I want to point out two main points of doctrine this morning and then make uh, a point of application from these truths. So the two points of doctrine this morning are, number one, a biblical worldview requires that we use God's standard to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, even among civil rulers. And number two, the way we remember a civil ruler's life or anyone's life, must be based on the biblical standard, not man's standard. So, point of doctrine number one, the biblical worldview requires that we use God's standard to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, even among civil rulers. So note, first of all, that in those texts we read, there is a distinction between two types of people, the wicked and the righteous, One of the most important doctrines in Christianity, if you get this wrong, it's impossible to have a biblical worldview. If you don't understand this doctrine, the doctrine that there is a great distinction between the righteous and the wicked, both in life and in death. Now, such a distinction is so explained, defined, and applied throughout all Scripture that at many points, such as here in Proverbs, it's simply assumed and flatly stated Right? When it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices, and when the wicked perish, there are shouts of gladness. Two different types of people are assumed, and there are two very different responses. This theme is so common, this distinction between the wicked and the righteous. It's so common in Proverbs that you really can't even read a few verses without coming into contact with it. However, let me read uh, some more from the book of Proverbs just to illustrate how ingrained... Into the biblical worldview, the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, or the just and the unjust, really is. So let me just read through these. Proverbs 28:12. When the righteous triumph, there is great glory. But when the wicked rise, people hide themselves. 29, 2. When the righteous increase, the people rejoice. But when the wicked rule, the people groan. 29, 7. A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man does not understand such knowledge. And Proverbs 29, 27, An unjust man is an abomination to the righteous, but one whose way is straight is an abomination to the wicked. Of course, this distinction making is not limited to Proverbs or even the Old Testament. The Lord Jesus, always having God's law on his mind, sang the same tune, right? Matthew chapter 13 The Lord says, so it will be at the close of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, generally speaking, our culture hates this distinction. Our society, currently motivated more by humanism than Christianity, does not like that there is a clear distinction between two groups of people. In many ways, the only wicked ones in our culture seem to be those who would even suggest that there is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. The idea of acceptance has come to mean that we erase distinctions between good and evil, righteousness and wickedness. If someone wants to commit the sin of adultery, we must, in our culture, simply accept it as amoral. If someone wants to live a homosexual lifestyle, we must accept it as amoral. In our culture, if someone wants to murder their child while still inside this mother's womb, we must accept it as amoral. We must, according to a man's standard, according to this fallen humanistic standard, refuse to make distinctions between righteousness and wickedness. However, such an understanding of acceptance is ungodly, unhelpful, and unloving. The loving thing to do is embrace others as fellow image bearers of God, while also caring enough to proclaim God's standard for righteousness and the only hope any of us have for forgiveness, salvation, and blessing, namely the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, there is no question that a biblical worldview requires us to maintain that there is in fact a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. We cannot do justice to the text we've read and countless others if we do not make this distinction. Now, let me note briefly that we need to understand that the righteous are not righteous because they are inherently better than the wicked. No, the righteous, in biblical terms, are righteous because they have received grace from God. They have, by the grace of God, come to faith in Jesus Christ, and their lives have been changed by God's Spirit. That's the righteous. They are not sinless. But the course of their life is marked by obedience to God's law word. That's the righteous in Scripture. Now, it's clear that the Bible makes this distinction between the righteous and the wicked. But fallen humanity is prone to blur this distinction. If not, seek to remove it entirely. And one of the first places this distinction is expunged, even among professing Christians, is in the realm of civil magistrates. Many professing Christians have bought into the idea that there's some imaginary line between a person's private life and their public life, or between religious matters and, quote-unquote, secular matters. And while certain people will maintain that a person ought to avoid certain sins in their private life, they would say there's not really a biblical standard that applies to how someone will govern a nation, or make laws, or make legal judgments. However, our texts allow for no such abridgment of the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. In fact, when you consider those verses in Proverbs, the distinction between the righteous and the wicked is even more pronounced because of the impact civil rulers have on others. So when we think about the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, it certainly applies to the civil realm because of the impact that these rulers have on others. Listen again to Proverbs 28:28. When the wicked rise... The idea is when the wicked rise to power, people hide themselves. But when they perish, the righteous increase. So when a wicked man or woman rises to power in a nation, the Christian ought not to say, well, he is a wicked person, but thankfully the distinction between righteousness and wickedness does not apply in the civil realm. May it never be... That's not the correct response. Rather, the godly, the righteous, the faithful hide themselves when evil men or women come to power. The righteous groan when an unjust ruler comes to power. We must maintain the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, for the Bible requires us to do so. Now, admittedly, people use a lot of different standards to distinguish between civil rulers, right? In the end, however, none of man's standards really matter at all. The democratic standard is irrelevant. The republican standard is irrelevant. They're vapid and man-made doctrines both. The one standard that matters is God's standard. The standard for civil rulers is the law of the Lord, not man's laws. God requires all people... And not least of all, civil rulers to enforce righteousness or biblical justice. Psalm 72 gives a standard for civil magistrates in the form of a prayer song, where we read, May he, speaking of the king, judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice. God's law is the only standard for righteousness. Therefore, a ruler who subverts God's law is not enforcing righteousness but is promoting wickedness. So that's our first point of doctrine today. A biblical worldview, as evidenced in the book of Proverbs, requires that we use God's standard to distinguish between the righteous and the wicked, even among civil rulers. We must make that distinction. Now, point number two, our second point of doctrine is this. The way we remember a civil ruler's life or any person's life, really, must be based on the biblical standard, not man's standard. Now, our culture does not deal honestly with death, with death. We ignore a person's actions in their life and simply have a lot of sentimentality sometimes after they die. However, the Bible gives us a different focus. When you read through the accounts of the kings and civil magistrates of Israel and Judah in the Bible, you quickly realize that the one standard that mattered in remembering their life wasn't whether or not they were passionate, whether or not they were committed to a cause, wasn't whether or not they made a difference. The standard that mattered was this. Did they do what was right in the sight of the Lord? Did they do what was right in the eyes of the Lord? Take a brief sampling from the book of 2 Kings. Consider King Jehoram. He walked in the way of the kings of Israel as the house of Ahab had had done. For the daughter of Ahab was his wife, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Or King Ahaziah. He also walked in the way of the house of Ahab and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as the house of Ahab had done. For he was son-in-law to the house of Ahab. Or King Jeroboam II. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, which he made Israel to sin. Or King Zechariah. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, as his father had done. And the list goes on. Now, I'm sure there were a lot of admirable traits, humanly speaking, about these rulers, even about King Ahab or Jezebel. They may have been persistent. They may have been dogged, they may have been determined, they may have been, they may have been steadfastly committed to a cause despite opposition, they may have been trailblazers and innovators in their fields, but in the end, that's not how we remember them. We remember them as wicked civil magistrates who re- rejected God's law and oppressed others. You see, biblical wisdom is what we are after, not political correctness. While we do not rejoice that sinners go to face judgment, we rejoice when the wicked are no more because we care about people who had to endure the evil that said wicked rulers had promoted in the land. We care about justice. If God chooses to remove a wicked ruler, in our case, in our day, a ruler who brazenly, and high-handedly supported the shedding of blood of millions of babies who had committed no crime, if God chooses to remove such a leader, it would be contrary to biblical wisdom to mourn and lament that such a person has been removed from our midst, as if we wanted such evil to continue to spread throughout the land. We must not be two-faced. We, If we are to hold to God's word, let us hold to it. The way we remember a civil ruler's life or any person's life must be based on the biblical standard, not man's standard. Those are our two points of doctrine this morning. I want to wrap up with a point of application, bringing this together. And that is this Fidelity to God's word and a biblical worldview. So, faithfulness to God's word and a biblical worldview are more important than feelings. Or political correctness. So I'm not suggesting any sort of uh, disparaging of any image bearer of God that has died. We should respect all people as made in the image of God. However, that does not mean that we ignore Scripture when someone dies. We are being double minded theologically and in our worldview if we maintain that a person is wicked during their life because of the rejection of Christ's Lordship and then remember them as if they were righteous and a blessing to society. We can be saddened by death, and we should be saddened by death, and we can feel the loss that loved ones would feel, and we can offer our sympathies, but we must not put such things ahead of faithfulness to God's Word. As we teach ourselves, as we teach our children, and as we teach the generation and the world around us about God's law, we must be able to correctly evaluate a person's life in light of God's law word. When it comes to civil rulers, as I consider the Bible as a whole, there are three main areas often highlighted in Scripture in highlighting the wickedness of evil rulers. Number one, leading people away from the truth of the one true God. Leading people into a false understanding of truth, of justice, of uh, right and wrong, of who God is and what he requires of us. So leading people away from the truth of the one true God is number one. Number two, you often see that rulers are condemned for oppressing the poor, often via taxation, using their power to take from the poor, to steal from the poor. And number three, one of the most common indictments against civil rulers is the shedding of innocent blood in the land. So leading people away from the truth Oppressing the poor often via taxation. And number three, shedding innocent blood in the land. And there is no question that Ruth Ginsburg was known for at least two of these things. First, in her quest to destroy marriage, she willingly led people away from God's good design for society. One of the greatest blessings for human society and culture is marriage and family and the blessings of children. And she willingly led people away from that good design. And second, she promoted the shedding of innocent blood on a scale that is nearly unfathomable in supporting abortion and the right to kill unborn children. Though she had the honorific of justice, she had the title of justice before her name, she did not understand justice. She could not have Proverbs 28.5 says this, evil men do not understand justice. Evil men, evil women do not understand justice. Death is a sober thing. There's no question about that. And we should be brought to serious contemplation anytime anyone dies. And there is a lesson here to learn that applies to the death of any wicked person. And again, remember, biblically, the wicked, we're all wicked unless we come to faith in Christ. The righteous, then, are those who have, by God's grace, found favor with God. So when I speak of the death of the wicked, it's any one of us who dies who has not come to faith in Christ. Because we are all fallen in Adam, and we are wicked and sinful. That is our nature, unless the gospel is preached in the word of God. Resonates in our heart. The spirit comes in and causes us to be born again. So there's a lesson here that applies to the death of any wicked person, whether civil ruler or not. Charles Spurgeon once preached that we must never be afraid of speaking the consequences of sin plainly and broadly. He went on and said this. Listen to this as we bring this together in our final point of application being that we must have fidelity to God's word, no matter what our natural feelings incline us to. Spurgeon said this, I have heard of a father. I have heard of a father, one of whose sons, a very ungodly young man, died suddenly. The father did not, as some would do, say to his family, we hope your brother has gone to heaven. No. But... Overcoming his natural feelings, he was enabled by divine grace to gather the older children and say to them, My sons and daughters, your brother is dead. I fear he is in hell. You knew his life and conduct. You saw how he behaved. God snatched him away. Then he solemnly warned them of the place to which he believed and almost knew he had gone, begging them to avoid it. And then he was the means of bringing them to serious thought. But had he acted as some would have done with tenderness of heart, but not with honesty of purpose and said, he hoped his son had gone to heaven. What would the others have said? Would they not have said, if he has gone to heaven, there is no need for us to fear. We may live any way we like. No, no, I believe that it is not unchristian to say of some men that they have gone to hell. When we have seen that their lives have been hellish lives. But it is often said, can you judge your fellow creatures? No, but I can know them by their fruits. I do not judge them or condemn them. They judge themselves. I have seen their sins go before them to judgment, and I do not doubt that they shall follow after. But couldn't they have been saved at the 11th hour? I do not know that they can. I have heard of one who has, but I do not know that there ever was another, and I cannot tell that there ever will be. Be honest then with your children and teach them, by the help of god the evil will slay the wicked so we must not let as spurgeon urges us we must not let tenderness of heart overcome honesty of purpose to gloss over the distinction between the righteous and the wicked in life and even more in death is to utterly eradicate the gospel message The gospel message maintains that unless a man or woman, a boy or girl, is born again, unless he or she is utterly changed by the Spirit of God, he or she remains in the gall of bitterness and characterized by wickedness and on his way to hell. Our hope is not in a nebulous erasing of distinctions between the righteous and the wicked. Our hope is not that God will simply overlook our wickedness because we were sincere or determined or passionate our hope is jesus christ savior of wicked men and women all who repent and trust in him become righteous in his sight and increasingly righteous even in this life for those that refuse to bow the knee to king jesus they remain wicked and as such they will be remembered for the bible tells us the memory of the righteous is a blessing But the name of the wicked will rot. It is this willingness to be consistent in our beliefs and this commitment to having God's revealed word correct our natural feelings that will allow us to think rightly about the death of wicked men and women, civil rulers and citizens alike. The biblical response to the death of a wicked ruler is to rightly ascertain that such a ruler promoted iniquity, and injustice in the land during his or her life. As such, we do not mourn the removal of the wicked ruler from the land. We are not gleeful that a sinner has gone to hell. We are not gleeful at that. But we are thankful that the righteous can, even in a small sense, increase and abound. You see, we do not merely look to heaven as if what happens on earth doesn't matter. The Lord taught us to pray that God's will be done in heaven and in earth. And we care about the consequences of wicked rulers and of their actions in the land. And so as we remember the death of wicked rulers, may we pray that God would would bring about righteousness in our land, that there would be righteous rulers who would judge with equity, who would follow God's law, that the poor would not be oppressed, that innocent blood would not be shed in our land because there will be a reckoning for such iniquity. And as such, we pray for uh, the spread of righteousness and truth in our land. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth found in your word. There is a clear distinction between the righteous and the wicked. We pray, Lord, that we would not blur that distinction in our minds, in our speech, in our teaching, to our children and others, that we would maintain such a distinction, that we would be faithful to your word regardless of our feelings. We pray, Lord, that we would not be gleeful or boast about the death of wicked rulers, that we would have a sobriety and solemnness, which is commensurate with the death of any image bearer of God, We also pray, Lord, that we would be faithful to your word, that we would not shy away from speaking the truth, that we would not shy away from speaking the consequences of sin and evil and wickedness. We pray, Lord, that we would be conformed more and more to your word. We pray for your blessing in our land. We pray for a complete transformation, a revival, a reformation, that the word of God would go forth and would change Change this culture from one that hates you and your law to one who loves you and your law. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.